Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Halith, who works with the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation Observability Workgroup, has announced a new library, a new Elixir library. Actually, a couple of them. The first one is Mix Unused. Well, I think we mentioned this uh, sometimes back. It tries to identify unused public functions. So that was pretty cool. Here's another one. This one is called Mix Machine. And so when you compile your project, it produces a report that is machine readable, right? I, I'm sure uh, a lot of us have, you know, done mix compile before and you see some, you know, warnings perhaps or maybe errors. And so what this does is it takes those human readable errors and, and, and warnings into machine readable. How this is helpful is that uh, it uses the same format that uh, some Git uh, hosting platforms like GitHub uh, or other code scanning kinds of uh, platforms they can pick up these files and inline those reports right in your code as you're looking at it on the UI. So pretty neat. That's really cool. Next up, we saw a pretty cool project come across called git.limo. You're most likely using Git for managing your source code already. This looks like GitHub, but written in Elixir. It's still in the early stages, but we just wanted to bring it up because it's a pretty fun live view project that looks pretty good. I don't know. What do you guys think about it? Did you check it out? I did. I'm looking forward to it. I always like having good options outside the big ones, right? So like GitLab and GitHub and SourceHut's a good option. And I'm really looking forward to something like GitLimo. That's something I can contribute to. Yeah. What I thought was just cool about it is it's like a really a mini GitHub. It has some basic issue tracking, some basic code browsing with some Git history on individual files where you can have the nice Git diffing in the browser. And it's doing all that. But the coolest part is that it's written in Elixir. It's open source and you could even self-host it and just play with it for your local projects. So it's something worth keeping an eye on. And if you're interested in Git management stuff, it'd be a great place to jump in and contribute. Phoenix 1.6 was released. We'd mentioned this before. There's a big release. Along with that came a change that we didn't really realize had as big of an impact that it did. In there, there was a change that set Argon2 as the default hashing algorithm when you did a mix.gen.auth or mixgenauth, which you really should be using mixgenauth. It's a great, great generator for building a lot of that normal user authentication setup stuff. But the big difference is, is that Argon2 was what was switched to from the previous bcrypt. And the reason is because OWASP organization, which is a security group, has recommended Argon2 as a better solution. The reason Argon2 is recommended is because people have been using a lot of hardware like ASIC hardware that they often use with crypto mining and things like that for doing very fast hashes. And they use those to crack password databases that they might get from a breach. And so they're just trying to crunch the numbers as fast as possible. So to try and combat that, the Argon2 algorithm works very differently. It is what's called a memory hard algorithm. So it requires a lot of RAM in order to do it. So you can't brute force it just with these highly specialized CPUs. So the problem is, is if you're deploying your application to the smallest VM of whatever platform you're on, then you're very likely to run out of memory because this approach with all of its hashing iterations requires a lot of RAM. So we were seeing this at Fly because people were deploying their new Phoenix apps on the smallest instance size. And as they were logging in, they were running out of memory. (laughs) 
And so it's kind of a, a silly problem, right? But the same thing would happen on an AWS mini instance or anywhere else. So we've got links to all this in the show notes where you can check out what this means to be a memory hard algorithm and what Argon2 is. The takeaway is that the Phoenix project has already reverted the change so that new projects and new Phoenix Gen Auth setups will use Bcrypt and not Argon2. But the docs were updated to explain that, hey, if you're on a machine that can handle the the requirements of Argon2, then that's a great option to use. So this is just something to be aware of. The new Phoenix with this revert has not come out yet. So if you're building a brand new Phoenix app and wanting to run on some low-end hardware for your personal project, just be aware of this. And you may want to switch back to Bcrypt for the hashing solution right now. Yeah, if you're on low hardware, try using Bcrypt. If you're on high-end hardware, defaults are great with Argon2 or switch to Argon2. All right. Also in 1.6, you may have heard that ES build uh, was uh, changed out, you know, as, as the, the asset pipeline for JavaScript. With that changes how you would install Tailwind. And so the Pragmatic Studio, uh, namely Mike Clark, has updated his guide on adding Tailwind CSS for Phoenix 1.6. So we'll get a link in the show notes, but it's largely the same. Just uh, still uses NPM. You bring NPM back in, but we're, we're going to use the Tailwind CLI to watch and generate that output alongside of uh, the artifacts from ES Build. Pretty neat, good little guide. Uh, go check it out. Next up, we just wanted to mention that Gleam has finally got its own package manager. If you haven't heard of Gleam, Gleam is a typed language that runs on the Beam. Louis Pilfold, who we've had on the show previously, has been working on this for a long time, so we just wanted to congratulate him and his team on this major milestone. And that's it for the news. Today, we are being joined by our special guest, Nick Begley. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Long time listener, first time caller. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, I'm glad you could join us because you were talking recently and blogging about using Rust with Elixir and some of the benefits and why that might be a reason to do that and to combine those two technologies. So I was really happy to get that perspective because obviously being just in the tech environment, tech scene, Rust is something that a lot of people have a lot of excitement around. It's just, woo, rust everything. (laughs) So it's great when we can understand what this can help us solve and how I can bring this in and where where it's beneficial. And so thank you for coming and joining us. But before we jump into all of that, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Yeah, sure thing. So I'm based in uh, Helsinki in Finland, software engineer by trade, but I've founded a bunch of companies or a couple of companies and worked at mostly early stage startups during my career. I'm currently working on a new startup called Doctave, where I'm building a new developer-friendly documentation stack that uses a docs as code approach. And it's very early days, you know, launched to uh, this summer into open beta. So uh, yeah, that's what I'm doing these days. So I haven't looked into Doctave a whole lot, but I see that there's an article written by you. It says, uh, why you should consider using docs as code. So, all right, I haven't read it, but docs is code. The first thing I think of is that doc macro in Elixir. Is that what that means is docs inside your code that gets extracted out into documentation? Tell me about that. So docs as code generally refers to the idea of just writing your documentation in source code as opposed to having it in an external system like a wiki of some sort. Technically, it could be part of your actual source code as in inside the source files themselves and they get parsed out somehow, maybe like function definitions and so on and so forth. But I think more generally what it's being used for, oh, that term is used for, is to describe the uh, case where you have like markdown files or something like that. And then those markdown files then get rendered into a nice documentation site, usually as part of CI/CD. 
Gotcha. Okay. And inside of your markdown, you might have code in there. So I, I think MDX usually helps with that kind of stuff. Is, is that the idea here? Actually, I got to be honest, I'm not familiar with MDX in particular here. <laughs> it's kind of like a, allows you to put right React components or view component. Vuex is another one. I see. Yeah, th- definitely. And um, I mean, there are lots of plugins that you can use to kind of make your markdown files kind of be more interactive, for example. Uh, like Docte, for example, has support for Mermaid.js graphs. And uh, so you can embed graphs and text format into your markdown that they will then get rendered in the browser into kind of nice, pretty diagrams. That is something I love about Elixir that documentation is really built in to it and especially helpful for libraries where you can have those extra markdown files that can get compiled into the xdoc documentation where you can it can just be freeform text uh, with diagrams and everything giving you guides like this is what this is for here's the architecture overview you know whatever is relevant what i do love about that and to your point is that it is nice when it's linked to the source code because it reflects the version of the source code that it's tied to. I got to say that Elixir is like a shining example of how to do a documentation stack built into a language like XDoc is a fantastic system. And not only because of how well, you know, all the function definitions get rendered out into these nice pages, but specifically what you said about like being able to use Markdown to actually write guides as part of your libraries. And that's really, really powerful for creating tutorials and the such, which are arguably more important than API documentation as such, which can just be used as references. But actually being able to show this is how you use this library or program, that's, I think, more important for the user who's coming in new to a system that they haven't seen before. Xdocs is written for a completely different audience, you know, than, than Doctave might be. So I, so I understand that, yeah, like we have documentation in Xdocs and it's, it's about this function. And yeah, it can be written in in Markdown and have references and such. But probably, I don't think I've ever come across this either. You probably wouldn't publish your xdocs as your, you know, mycoollibrary.com, you know, and expect all your end users to go read your hexdocs um, kind of of stuff. So tell me a little bit more about Doctave and what holes it's trying to fill here. What what problems are, is this going to be good at solving? Yeah, you're right. Maybe Xdocs wouldn't be, you know, the the right tr- uh, tool for, you know, um, in, in some cases. So the idea for Doctave sort of came about from my experience just documenting kind of internal tools and kind of just generally my work as I've been in companies before and found these kind of wikis and such quite cumbersome to use quite often. And I sort of discovered actually that it turns out that a lot of companies like, you know, Google and Twitter and Spotify, actually, I, you know, to name a few, have built these sort of Doctave like systems internally, you know, years ago. So Google has this thing, has a system called G3 Docs that they've kind of blogged about and talked about. Twitter likewise has a system called Docbird and Spotify actually has an open source system called uh, Backstage, which is a kind of a microservice catalog, but one of the more popular features is its Docs as code system that's built into it. And the idea just being that, you know, a lot of the documentation that you end up writing inside companies is not necessarily API documentation. It's about tutorials. It's about architecture decision records, kind of describing what these systems do, how they interact with each other. Maybe not for yourself, but maybe your future colleagues, you know, maybe after you've left the company and just making sure that the knowledge doesn't kind of stay in engineers' brains, but instead gets put into some documentation. And what these companies found and what I'd also found, and, and I'm sure many of other, other listeners have also found is that if you have that old kind of corporate knowledge base, you know, that's kind of where information tends to go to die. And you join a company as a new employee and you go and look at, you know, whether it's Confluence or some other system and you, everything's going to be out of date and none of it's actually going to be useful anymore. And sometimes it's actually going to be actively harmful. <laughs> yeah. 
And at least in, uh, in the case of Google they very and Spotify, they very actively said that using this approach got their engineers to actually write more documentation, spend more time with documentation, and it helped create this culture of documentation overall that then increased their documentation quality. As I understand it, Doctave, the service that you offer, the website that people can go and use for doing this, is written in Phoenix and Elixir. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Right. And I'm guessing that there's some tie-in to Rust and with this product or service. So how is Rust brought into this and what problem is this solving for you? Yeah. So Doctave comes in two parts. So one part is an Elixir, which I'll come back, I'll come back to in a moment. But actually, the first part of Doctave that I wrote was in Rust. And what it is, is it's a CLI, and it's essentially a markdown parser that or takes your markdown files and creates a nice documentation site out of them. It's a documentation site generator. And it's open source. It's free to use. It is indeed written in Rust. And you can take those sites that it generates from your markdown files, and you can deploy them on GitHub pages or any other hosting provider of your choice. And this is what I launched about just under a year ago, actually. Now I created the first version. Then the second part of Doctave is, you know, Doctave.com, which essentially is a specialized hosting provider f- specifically for, ho- uh, for Doctave documentation sites. And the idea is that if you are an organization that maybe is using Doctave for multiple projects, maybe, you, you know, you have 20, 30 different repositories, different projects that, uh, you know, that need to be documented, you want them all under one roof instead of on N different GitHub pages, for example. Maybe you want to be able to search for them across, you know, in one place. Uh, you want to have some standardization access control, these sorts of features, then you can come to doctave.com and, you know, that's the paid service that we provide. And yes, this indeed is, is built in Elixir and Phoenix. So you said that this, the first tool that you started building was the Markdown parser that actually generates the static files and you chose Rust. And whenever we talk about languages that are kind of described as closer to the metal or lower level languages that are really around performance, there's a few that come up. Go being one, Rust being another, obviously C or C++. But then there's also Zig. And I'm just curious if there is any particular reason you chose Rust over other options. Yeah, those are all very you know good choices. You know, I think they would have been perfectly reasonable to do, uh, languages to choose. I was just more familiar with Rust and I really love, love uh, Rust as a language. But I think the main reason that you would choose like a language like that, actually, like part of it is speed, yes, but uh, I think that's arguably not as important in this case. I think more important than that, than that is actually the distribution. So being able to distribute static binaries of your program makes life so much easier. I used to work at a company where I was distributing a developer tool chain that was a, a Ruby gem and it had C extensions and it was just a nightmare getting that to work on different platforms and you know it, it created a big support burden. So being able to like take a program language like Rust or Go or Zig, you know, for that matter, you know, which you can just literally just compile it on a bunch of different platforms and it's a single file that you drop into your path and it just works. That was really the killer feature, so to speak, for choosing that language. I know that Rust is good at that, but I've actually heard that other languages like Zig and Go are actually even better at universal operability where you compile the one the one thing and it, and it works. Uh, well, that's in Go's case, but in Zig, it's... it's uh, you know, I don't actually know how it does, how Zig does it, but I, from what I understand, it does it differently. <laughs> anyway, well, yeah, Zig's got a lot of uh, attention lately about access to the to the lower level speed. So not to say that Rust can't do all that stuff. Obviously, it's going to be really good at all, all that stuff. And of course, you know, you, you did it and it's great. And, and Rust is 
still really good. And it has things like Rustler to help get those those bindings into Elixir, which is great. But I was reading through your article, though, and I thought the, the, the problem at the beginning was that you have like a budget of your web request. You know, you, you have like a, a hundred milliseconds or something like that. And getting the markdown parsing part of that into Rust helps you get your latency budget under control. Was that it? Or, you know, you wrote it. Why don't you tell me what that was about? I had this problem essentially when I was building docsafe.com that I wanted the markdown to generate the same output on both platforms, whether you're using the Rust CLI or you're using rendering stuff on docsafe.com. And I thought, well, hey, it's markdown. You know, I'm just going to pull in Dave Thomas's earmark library and, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it a day. But unfortunately, Markdown is not a standard, really. So there's a few competing standards of Markdown, and any given uh, Markdown generator is going to have some, they're not going to generate exactly the same output. But not only that, I actually ended up having to do some special customization for some features that are in Doctave that are not part of any any well-known Markdown standard. For example, you know, Mermaid.js diagrams that need, needed a bit of tweaking and a bunch of other things. When I was working on Doctave.com, I kind of put an earmark in there and I, was like, I kind of got an 80% solution done and called it a day. And I was like, okay, I'm going to come back to this later, before, you know, and fix this for real. And I realized, you know, when I came back to it, that actually the, that Elixir was taking a non-trivial amount of time to parse these markdown files. It was sort of taking on the order of hundreds of milliseconds. And to your point about, you know, the budget that you have in a, in a web request, you know, whether it's 100 or 200 milliseconds or something, I felt like I was kind of hitting that limit or hitting the end of that budget pretty quickly, you know, even without, you know, even, you know, just with this naive case. So of course, you know, there's ways you can combat this, you know, um, even in Alexa, you don't need to pull in another language. And that's actually what I did initially. So I, I threw in a caching layer in there because, you know, Elixir and OTP is fantastic. Or, you know, and you have things like ETS that you can throw stuff into. And, you know, you know, it was like an afternoon of coding. And I had a, had a nice little caching layer in bet- uh, um, that, you know, when someone would visit a project, you know, spawn a process. And then, you know, that process would manage the ETS entries for that uh, project. And we'd only have to render the markdown on the first request. And, you know, life was good. There was other options as well. But that's actually what I ended up building for a while. But then, you know, even that's not perfect because you could sort of end up in these weird cases if you have a lot of traffic when lots of people viewing your pages that you could end up running out of memory, possibly, or, you know, you know, and then you, it's just another thing that you sort of have to worry about. I guess this is always the thing with caching is like you solve one problem, but then you create a few other ones, you know, in the, in the process. <laughs> so it was around this time that I, then I discovered, yeah, Rustler, which was already mentioned uh, uh, earlier here. And so that for those listeners who are not familiar with Rustler, it's essentially a library that makes it really, really easy to integrate Rust into your Elixir project through Erlang NIFs or native implemented functions. I think I got that right. I thought it was going to could be a really interesting uh, solution here because I already had this code it, written in Rust, you know, that parsed the uh, markdown perfectly, just the way I wanted. So I thought, well, how how hard could it be? And I en- ended up extracting that part from the Rust project and put it into a Rust crate, which is the Rust version of a, of a library or name for a library rather, and pulled that into my Elixir project using Rustler. And I think I ended up having to write about a hundred lines of glue code to sort of map the Elixir data structures to the Rust data structures and do some argument parsing. But at the end of the day, you know, I ended up with a Elixir function where you could throw a big string of markdown and out would come a string of HTML and it was implemented in Rust. And when I then ended up benchmarking this, this ended up being about 100 times faster, which is completely unsurprising if you sort of, you know, because Rust is a very, very low level language, at least compared to Elixir. 
And you know, Elixir, as fast as it is doing network, uh, writing network code for CPU-bound tasks, it can struggle sometimes. But what was really cool about this, I thought, was that I would sort of come up with these sort of, well, you can call it caching a hack, or at least it's a, you're trying to solve a problem, you know, this thing taking too long. But using Rustler and Rust in this case, I feel like it just made the problem go away completely. Because like it's really it's really hard to make to get Rust to spend over five milliseconds on a, on parsing Markdown. Like you have to throw a lot of stuff at it before it starts taking a long time. So considering how easy Rustler made my life, you know, you know, in bringing uh, my Rust code into Elixir, I thought this was just a huge win, and I wanted to talk about it because in my case, it was a really good fit. Yeah. I'm curious, did you happen to throw like a 100 megabyte markdown file through that Rust? And <laughs> how did that work? I, oh, I should do that, actually. I didn't throw 100 megabytes at it. I, I sort of only threw, quote unquote, reasonably sized inputs at it. <laughs> but I should probably throw some unreasonable stuff at it just to, just as a test. Uh, that could have been actually quite fun. Yeah, because hey, I, I know optimization is usually the story of like trade-offs, right? Um, and so like I've, I've been learning recently that Elixir is really good at like I.O., really good at orchestration but yeah when you when you need to quote crunch the numbers that there's often other languages that are lower level and better to do that but it's still a trading you know cpu for loading the entire thing into memory yeah okay and so i I, i'm i'm freed up some cpu but i've lost my my ram when i'm doing this stuff you know like i still have a problem (laughs) it's just it's just much quicker of a problem yes (laughs) not to imply that Rust was just trading the problem for you, I, I'm, I'm positive that it was 100 times faster and better all the way around, really. I'm starting to have a clearer picture of, of like where Elixir really, really, really is good. And that it, it it's okay, you know, to get you to that 80% for those things like what you encountered, right? Parsing the, the markdown. And then the, to, to get that extra 20% or that, that extreme performance, you know, dropping down to Rust, um, you know, like for ordered sets with Discord or, you know, with uh, Markdown parsing in, in your case. And there's certainly all sorts of other cases, but just delegating that to another place. Elixir is a really good fit for like orchestrating, beginning that story and then using the right tools, you know, after that. So for those of us who haven't used Rustler, myself included, like, how do you go about shipping the the Rust binary? Do you have to, like, include it in your depth somehow? Or, like, how does that work when you now rely on, like, an external binary now? Yeah, that's fair. I'm, tr- I'm trying to, like, uh, refresh my memory because I this was literally like a, a fire and forget thing. It was so easy to do. I did it one afternoon and I haven't had to touch it since. But basically, <laughs> if, I, if memory serves, essentially, once you add the, you know, Rustler in, as a dependency in your project... Rustler will sort of maintain like a tiny little embedded Rust project inside your Elixir project in a special folder. And that's where you write your Rust code. And then it'll provide macros on both sides, actually on Elixir and Rust, to create the glue that you need to make these two languages talk to each other. I assume that that code that's going into your Rust project and on, that's on the Elixir side of the project is things like mapping data structures between the two. And things like that. So if you have like a list of tuples, it's, well, Rust might not have list of tuples. So it's got to turn it into something else and then coming in the reverse as well. Is, is that kind of what it's solving for you? Yeah, that's correct. And to be honest, like I, I, I'm not sure where I would start if I had to go and implement NIFs from scratch. I should go, I'd have to go and look at the Erlang documentation and see how that's done. So the, uh, big shout out to the Rustler folks. They just make it so trivially easy that it, 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 it was really, it, it was a joy to use. 
But then, of course, you know, you do have to consider that now as part of your build, you need to have both tool chains installed. So you need to have the Elixir tool chain and you need to have Rust tool chain because now as part of when you do mix compile, you know, you're, you're going to be compiling two languages and both are going to be included in the, in the binary in the end. And so, you know, it's just something to think about, you know, in terms of CI and stuff like this. And, you know, I like Doctave gets, uh, gets deployed on, you know, as a Docker image at the end of the day and, but, you know, using mixed releases. So there's very few dependencies at the end of the day. So it, the final product actually is quite nice and contained. And it was fairly easy to set up at the end of the day. So the, the short answer is Rustler does all the work for you. You just include it and you write your code where it tells you to and your binaries will just work if you have the tool chain. <laughs> Basically. I imagine you have something like the Docker image where you're having a step or a layer where you're saying build the Rust portion of the project and then add that outputted binary in as something in your final docker image actually it's all it's all encapsulated in in the mix compile step so you, you don't even have to go out of your way to make sure that you know you're running some step ahead ahead of time you just do you know mix compile and it'll then rustler will invoke cargo for you cargo being the rust kind of compiler tool chain and everything will just get linked for you so I think that's what you're saying, right, Mike, is that your Docker would just have to make sure that Rust C or Cargo is installed beforehand, and then you should be good to go, right? Yeah, but it's actually smoother than what I was thinking it was. So very cool. Yeah. So I am curious, when you were going through this, granted, this is not top of mind, you haven't just solved this problem, but were there any tips or problems that you ran into in, in having this connection or merging of these two tools that you might pass on to anyone else? I think in my case, it was, uh, you know, once I was able to extract, you know, the relevant code from the existing, you know, Rust project, it was fairly straightforward. Then, it, it, But now you just have an extra dependency that you need to manage and version correctly because you're using it in two places. So that's a little bit of added complexity, of course. You need to always be careful with NIFs, of course, because if your NIF crashes, it will bring down the whole Beam process, not just your your Elixir process or the Erlang process, the actual whole OS process will come crashing down. So you need to be careful about what you do in those NIFs. And you also need to make sure that they don't take too much CPU time because that can really mess up with the, with the Erlang scheduler. So Rust, again, you know, is a, is a good fit here because Rust, you know, has really interesting compile time checks that it's able to do for memory safety and also some concurrency checks that, you know, make it reasonably safe to use, at least what well, safer than, say, C. But it's still something to kind of keep in mind that, you know, you don't want to go ahead and do some kind of long running process in Rust, you know, as part of your NIF. I think Erlang does have, I think they call dirty NIFs, if, I, if memory serves, where they're able to offload some longer running NIFs onto background threads that then get pulled back into the scheduler once they're ready. But I haven't played around with those at all. And I'm sort of, I would love one day to do like a little, little toy project of having long running Rust threads that communicate back to Elixir using kind of asynchronous message passing. I don't know if it's a good idea. I don't know if it's possible, but it could be cool to try out. A topic that comes up in the Elixir community a lot, just perennial topic that keeps coming up. <laughs> because as people come to Elixir from other languages, there's always the question of, I want static types. And now you're crossing that bridge where you have your foot. You say, I really like Rust. I really like what it can do over here. And that has some really strong type system. And it's a very static typed. And then you're also on the Elixir slash Erlang side where it has strong typing, but it's dynamic. So I am curious, 
Where do you fall in that? And do you have any problems stepping back and forth? What are your feelings on types? I have to be careful what I say. People are going to get angry. Um, <laughs> I really enjoy both worlds. Like my first kind of big language that I got into and, I, and like deeply was Ruby, the most dynamic of any dynamic language, you know, arguably, you know, all bets are off when it comes to Ruby. And I really enjoyed doing that. I also definitely had this experience of using Java and just thinking that types really got in the way. And I hate, I always hated having to write, you know, type, type declarations for absolutely everything. And I'm really sympathetic to the idea that for people who've had that kind of experience that types just get in the way, I just want to write my code. Just let me do the thing. I think Rust has been, has really taught me to think about programs in a very different way because of how powerful the type system is. Some people would say that probably for things like, for languages like Haskell, which, you know, I haven't tried, but as far as I understand, that's like an academic exercise where, you know, you really need to kind of dig into really complicated mathematical topics to understand exactly what's going on. I found Rust to be a really nice kind of halfway point between that, where it's very pragmatic, but also very, very powerful and sort of brings a lot of really powerful type system concepts into a language. Like one thing that I really do miss quite often in Elixir is Rust's enumerated types, for example. So for those who are unfamiliar, you know, you can basically say maybe you have a type that's a card and it can be one of like hearts, spades, whatever. And your compiler will check that your that object will only be one of those types. But not only that, if you then have some code somewhere that says, if it's this type, do this. If it's this type, do this. Your compiler will actually tell you, hey, you're missing one of the cases. So you can have this kind of confidence that if you have this kind of big, you know, enumerated type that, you know, could be a one of any variance, the compiler is not going to let you write code where it forgets one of the, where you forget one of those. And I th- that saved me so many times. And I feel like it's been a really big productivity boost for me. Is that in like calling code? Because I know that there's protocols and behaviors, and I've certainly been warned by the Elixir compiler that I'm not implementing a behavior, you know, like a function in a, in a behavior for something. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. I, I think... I suspect that you know behaviors in Elixir are probably more analogous to traits in Rust, if I had to, if I had to guess. But it's sort of a similar thing where these things can just be checked at compile time, and you kind of just make sure that your code isn't missing things. Elixir also does have some really nice things that, for example, Ruby doesn't have. Like I really love the fact that I can put struct definitions and pattern match on structs in my functions. So even though I don't necessarily get compile time checks that the things I'm putting into those functions are correct, at least it's going to blow up in a big way at compile time, and I'm going to see, okay, there's no oh, sorry at runtime, hopefully as part of my test run, and then I'm going to see, okay, you're no, you're you know, you're not using this the right way. So even though Elixir doesn't have you know this similar kind of type safety that you know. Rust has. There's still, you know, a little bit of that built in there. And if you're using Dialyzer and you've put in your type specs, you might get that warning too, but I don't think it's as guaranteed. <laughs> but you might not be able to read it if you do get that error. <laughs> yeah, I, I've certainly seen that. Like, there, it could Dialyzer will complain sometimes to me. So there's no way this could match. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to delete it then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've looked at Dialyzer a couple of times, but I feel like I need it like a weekend with it. I've tried to use it for some quick win- wins and I didn't get those quick wins. So I, I, felt, I always felt like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to this one day, you know, once, once I have some more time. I would say with Dialyzer, it's helpful if you can sit down with somebody who has had more experience with it and just kind of help explain some of those things as you encounter them. Yeah, that makes sense. But I did want to come back to Rustler really briefly, just not having used it myself. I have always wondered, because Elixir is highly concurrent, we can write our applications using a lot of concurrency. With Rustler, and it's connecting to a Rust binary how does that work? Like I have multiple concurrent requests coming into Elixir and they all want to go and use this same Rustler library connection. 
can those spawn off into multiple instances or do they kind of batch up or what, what happens there? This is admittedly slightly stretching my knowledge in the terms of like, but in terms of being 100% sure of how this works. But as far as I understand it, this is sort of not that dissimilar as, you know, there are some functions in the beam that are implemented in C in a similar way that now what we're just doing with Rustler is we're including some more code as part of the runtime. It looks like a C function, but it's implemented in Rust. And then your Elixir code ends up invoking that. So in some sense, it's it's sort of like on a different level that there isn't sort of message passing between some Rust process and some and, and, and the Elixir process. It's all happening inside Elixir. But this is where it, kind of, it can get a bit messy because, of course, then all bets are off about what you do, exa- what exactly you do in Rust. So technically, you could spawn whatever the hell you wanted and, you know, and then bad things might happen. But at least in this case where it's like it's a pure function, some, it takes some input, gives some output based on it, and you know, it doesn't have any kind of side effects. There's no really kind of scheduling, uh, like extra scheduling that happens. It all happens as if you were invoking some native function written in C that's already part of the Erlang runtime. I love that Elixir is being used at Doctave and that you're able to use Rust. And we've seen other stories come about too, like with Zig, you know, where there's this interlanguage communication or interlanguage operation stuff that we can do now. I really love that because of one of my, I don't know, drum I've always had to beat on is I don't like the monocultures that some companies like to adopt. And by monoculture, I mean, we only do this one language and that's all we do. And it might be surprising coming from us, maybe me, that I love Elixir so much, I would rather only ever do Elixir. But <laughs> I do believe that, um, you know, that involving multiple languages, you know, usually the, the, the tools for the job, the right ones, uh, is, is always going to be the right, the right choice. And as individuals and developers and learners, uh, it's always good to learn all these different languages, all these different techniques and, you know, stretch your mind in that way. So we've talked about Rust and how enjoyable it's been for you and and how it solved this problem, which has been uh, wonderful. I'm curious, how has been staking your business on Elixir for your SaaS company? Has that been a good experience? You know, have you found success there? Would you do it again? You know, knowing that you can do things like, uh, use things like Rustler to speed up some things. What's Elixir been like in your tool belt? Yeah, for, so to re- maybe repeat some of my background. So I, I built a whole bunch of Ruby on Rails applications before, and sort of that was sort of my web development stack of choice. But um, you know, I, I actually got into Elixir sort of pre 1.0 days. I can't remember exactly how I how I came across it, but I remember going to one of the very first Elixir meetups in London uh, at the Go Cardless offices over there. And they, I think there was like eight people there or something like that. And so if I, and and I've dabbled with Elixir and I'd sort of spent a bunch of time of it with it. Always wanted to use it for projects and I kind of saw the benefit of it. But of course, you know, when I, when it was time to start Doctave, you know, one of the things that they always say when you're founding a startup is that you shouldn't use that shiny new technology that you know you don't know really how to use. You should use the thing that you know inside out and you're going to be super productive in. So I had this kind of moment at the beginning where I, thought I had to kind of really think critically about whether or not this is a good idea because I hadn't actually used Elixir in anger properly, you know, in, in the same way that I had Rails. So I, I kind of gave myself a two-week test to see actually, if like, how, well, how far can I get in two weeks? And I thought I knew approximately how far I could get with Rails. So like, let's see what I can do with, uh, with Phoenix and, and, and Elixir. And I was actually fairly happy with it. But I think there's two other things that actually really made Elixir as a choice even more obvious. So one of them, you know, I think a lot of people will guess is live view, actually. That really pushed me over the edge in a sense, because 
I have tried to get into the JavaScript ecosystem a number of times unsuccessfully. I have found it really hard to navigate. And being able to essentially write these kind of, you know, what, well, what LiveView allows you to do, these kind of interactive applications, you know, without using any JavaScript, you know, has just been fantastic because it, and it allows me to essentially remove one language from my stack completely. We do use some Alpine JS, you know, for some client only stuff that, you know, I think, which is fairly common these days, you know, to come, to combine with LiveView. But yeah, LiveView has, has made our life a lot easier. That compared to bringing in something like React and having to build a whole separate API, that has genuinely saved a lot of time. But the second thing, actually, I think is possibly in the long term even more important, which is just simplifying the technology stack in general. I already mentioned that, you know, when we I had to reach for a cache, you know, when it came to, you know, caching these, these markdown uh, files or, or the generated HTML, rather. You know, I didn't have to pull in Redis or Memcached or something like that to do that. You know, OTP already has your, it's got your back and, you know, the tools are there. Same thing with like PubSub or something, or these things that, you know, you'd, in a lot of other ecosystems, you'd have to pull in some other, other service or dependency or some big piece of infrastructure that you're now going to have to learn how to manage. Elixir is enough. You know, you don't have to bring that in. You know, at this point, you know, the docdave.com stack is just Phoenix and Postgres and S3 and, and that's it. And I don't see that changing any anytime soon. That's not to say, of course, that it's all it's all rosy. The thing that has definitely slowed me down sometimes if, uh, has been the fact that you know if you're talking to an API that's provided by a company, um, for example, in my case, you know, I had to do this for Stripe and GitHub. The community built wrappers for those APIs were missing some features that I needed, so I had to fork them and add those myself. And I actually feel bad because I still haven't contributed my changes back, but that is definitely on on my to-do list. Thank you to those people who actually maintain those projects because, again, you saved me a lot of time. And that's just something you sort of have to be, you know, ready to do. It's the same case with any kind of lesser known language or less popular language. But I still think that the that the pros, you know, really outweigh the cons at this point. You're able to do so much so quickly with especially the Phoenix stack now that is really, really hard to do in other web frameworks, in other languages that I think in some sense, it, it does give you some superpowers in some sense. It's really cool and very powerful how you can get so far with just a lot of the things that come built into OTP and Elixir. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, like not over-optimizing, like just using things that don't necessarily add dependencies that just come with the stack. And then later when you have a million employees and you're ready to like go big time and do Redis and do memcache and you really want to like take it to the next level and you have the engineering manpower to do that, like that's great. But like while you're small and just getting started, it's really great to to be able to just reach for these things that are built in and keep it more basic, keep it less complex and you can get farther faster, I feel like. Well, thank you, Nick, for coming and sharing this experience and particularly just the insights where I think it helps people get confidence that they're working on building something. Maybe they're considering that idea of I could use Phoenix as a SaaS backend and having that concern like, well, it's it's not the tool I know really well. And I loved your idea of that two week trial project. Like I know how well, how far I could get with this other tool. Let me see how I can do it in two weeks and just kind of time box that and say, that's my experiment. I think that's a great strategy. I also think it's awesome just to let people know that it's okay to reach out to other tools like Rust, which can really help solve different problems and maybe in, a, in the best way, like the more performant way. And since you already have this library of code, it's like, pff, why not? Ju- I, I just need to use that. So I'm glad you could help us get a look at that and just remind us that, yes, this is a, a totally valid business solution 
and it works really well. Thank you. Yeah, no, I think it really turned out better than I could have expected, you know, this, you know, using Rust with Elixir. And I don't know, maybe we have to come up with some really cool name for this stack or something like that, you know, just so that, you know, we can start branding it and, and evangelizing it. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to give that some thought. Yeah. But Nick, if people want to follow you or learn more about Doctave or just see what you're doing or get involved with any of this, where should they go to do that? Yeah, sure. So you can find me on Twitter. So I'm at, I'm Nicholas Begley on Twitter. Doctave is at doctave.com. You can also find Doctave on GitHub, you know, if you want to use the open source, uh, you know, uh, markdown documentation generator for your own projects, you know, go right ahead. And if you want to talk about, how, you know, making your documentation at work better, hit me up. Uh, you can also email me at nick at doctave.com. That's N-I-K at doctave.com. Great. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.